Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Podcast 103, Dr. Randall Rouser, Is the Atheist My Neighbor? Part 1. Dr. Randall Rouser is an evangelical, systematic, and analytic theologian. His Ph.D. in theology is from King's College, London, and since 2003, he's been professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton in the province of Alberta in Canada. You may know him from the Internet, where he blogs and podcasts as the Tentative Apologist and also produces the 59 Second Apologist podcast. The author of many popular and scholarly articles and book chapters, his books include What on Earth Do We Know About Heaven? 20 Questions and Answers About Life and Death, God or Godless, co-authored with John Loftus, The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetics Rabbit Trails, You're Not as Crazy as I Think, Theology in Search of Foundations, Finding God in the Shack, and Faith Lacking Understanding, Theology Through a Glass Darkly. But he's here with us today to discuss his latest book called Is the Atheist My Neighbor? Rethinking Christian Attitudes Toward Atheism. Dr. Rouser, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Hey, I'm honored to be joining you, Dale. Dr. Rouser, how did you get the idea of writing this book? Uh, That's a good question. I don't actually think I've been asked that before. A few years ago, this is probably one of the incidents that first sort of put it in the back of my mind. You mentioned I, I did a book with John Loftus. Well, we were planning to do a debate at my home church in Edmonton. So we flew him up to debate the existence of God. And as I was going around telling people about it, the interesting response I got was people would give me this look, Christians would give me this look kind of of horror, like what you're debating an atheist, you're inviting an atheist into the church. And it highlighted really something that I've been aware of for a long time, which is that atheists have a very bad public persona in the minds of many people, in particular Christians. And I've been reflecting on that for a long time, and I wanted to get to the root of what it was, and the result was this book. A couple of times in the book you mentioned, quote, intellectual atheism as your subject matter. Dr. Rouser, in this discussion, what exactly do you mean by atheism? Oh, that's a very difficult topic or, or question, actually, because I think too often we, we sort of assume that, that we mean we all mean the same thing. And so it is important to define that term because there are, in fact, atheisms, just like there are theisms. So atheism is the negation of theism. You take an alpha privative and you put it in front of theism and you deny it. But what is it you're denying? So that's the, the prior question, I guess. So let me put it like this by giving a definition of what I understand God to be. This isn't easy. It's uh, pretty complicated, I guess. I don't actually talk about this in the book. In the book, I sort of assume a picture of classical theism. God has these attributes of being maximally good and maximally powerful and maximally wise or knowledgeable. A basic Anselmian definition that I'm sure your listeners would be familiar with. So God is that being then which none greater can be conceived. But if I could just back up a bit, Roy Kluser wrote a book several years ago where he says all belief systems have a conception of what they would call the divine or what he would call the divine. And he says the divine is that 
thing and a belief system which is unconditionally and independently real. It's sort of where the explanation stops. So I think you start off with belief systems have a conception of the divine. Some of them are non-theistic conceptions. So, for example, when Bertrand Russell famously was debating Copleston and he said, well, the universe just exists and that's all. That's where the explanation stops. Then that would be a, a non-theistic conception of the divine. But if you have a conception of the divine, which includes agency, so the divine is an agent or the divine is in part an agent, then that would, I think, bring you into the realm of clearly theism. So what I'm saying is theism would be a view that the divine or that which is absolutely non-conditionally real is an agent or is includes an agent. So for example, if you said there is this person and that person is the end of explanation, then that would clearly be theism of a sort. Uh, or if you said the divine includes a person and maybe something else like a platonic realm, then that also would constitute a form of theism. But what I'm really focusing on in the book is a more robust definition of theism than that, which is, as I said, the one that includes sort of something like classical theism. And, and I, I focus on that for a good reason, because that's, first of all, I think that's the most intellectually robust conception of theism. It's also the one that I think most fully lines up with what Christians believe. And of course, I'm a Christian, so I'm concerned with that. And it's the one that most people as atheists in the intellectual sphere have defined themselves over against. So that's what I'm meaning when I say theism and atheism. So atheism is denial of a perfect being or something like that. It's not simply lack of belief in God. Yeah, that's another so important issue that's, I think, increasingly arisen in the last few years is to have people who are defining atheism in a way that historically has included agnosticism, whereas agnosticism was the view that one neither affirms nor denies the existence of God. Atheism was the view that one denies the existence of God. But today you have people who are saying, well, I don't have a belief either way about whether God exists. And they try to define that as atheism. Now they're free to do that, but I would just say that's historically agnosticism. And what I'm really concerned in this book with are people who say, I don't believe any such being as the God of classical theism exists. Dr. Rouser, your book really revolves around what you call the rebellion thesis. What is the rebellion thesis? Uh, the rebellion thesis, as I define it, is the thesis that all examples of atheism, such as I've defined atheism here, so the denial that God exists, that all examples of atheism or of this kind of disbelief are the result of an active and culpable, morally culpable suppression of an innate disposition to believe in God. So people are suppressing their natural orientation to believe in God. And moreover, they do it because they hate God, because they're hostile toward God, and they want to be free to sin with impunity. Now, that would be the most robust conception of the rebellion thesis. 
And I get that out of, you know, reading back to those people I was interacting with who were, had all this hostility toward atheists. I get it from that, but also from, from reading what many Christians have written about atheists, that this is sort of an underlying assumption when they talk about atheists. So on the face of it, this is a very strong claim. It rules out, for instance, that there are atheists who are simply confused or who don't hate God, but have some other motivations. In your view, Dr. Rouser, has this been a popular view of atheists among Christians? I think it's been very popular. I think it's sort of in the oxygen in the air that people breathe. Now, because of that, because I think it's often sort of assumed that this kind of active disbelief this assertion that no God exists, there's been an assumption that it is just born of this kind of hostility. I don't think there are many people, I'm not aware of them, who've taken the time to articulate it quite in these terms. But I think what I've described as the rebellion thesis is a pretty fair description of the mainstream view that Christians have had toward atheists in the last few centuries. Dr. Rouser, you argue that this thesis is clearly too strong and that if we accept this thesis to be consistent, we'll have to say some things that most Christians are not going to want to say. What are those implications that we'll have to accept? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So what I'm talking about there is, this is the issue for the rebellion thesis. It identifies any denial or any failure to affirm the claim that God exists as resulting from sinful rebellion. So that's why people are denying that God exists, or that's why they're failing to affirm that God exists. Well, once we appreciate that that's what the rebellion thesis commits a person to, it means that not only are atheists in rebellion against God because they are failing to affirm that God exists, it also means that agnostics are in rebellion against God because they are failing to affirm that God exists. But then you can quickly go further from that and think about Christians. If there are Christians who at some time fail to affirm that God exists, then they too would be in rebellion against God. Now, you might be thinking, well, which Christian would fail to affirm that God exists? But in fact, the reality is that doubt is an aspect of the lives of many Christians. I've known many Christians who have wrestled throughout their Christian lives with doubts. I note in the book, a famous example of Mother Teresa after she died in 1997, her journals were published and we discovered that she wrestled with doubt throughout her life. She would write things such as, you know, if God exists, and then she would have some question for God. So it was clearly in those moments that she wasn't able to affirm unequivocally that God existed. And if the rebellion thesis is correct, then it sweeps into its dragnet. Not only every atheist is being in rebellion against God, but every agnostic and even Christians in those moments when they doubt, when they struggle with belief. So a typical approach that a Christian would have to somebody who is a professing Christian, but who is doubting whether God exists, or to somebody who's an agnostic would be, I guess, to urge some kind of pastoral care, or I don't know, try to help them in some way, rather than just rebuke them, you know, repent, sinner. Yeah. Your objection is that if there are atheists who are deserving of a rebuke, well, that's as may be, but it would seem too, it would seem like the wrong response for these people who are struggling with doubt. There's two different issues here. So the one issue is this pastoral issue of how you interact with a person who's doubting or 
doesn't believe in God or says God doesn't exist. So that's the first question pastorally, how you interact with them. Another issue is whether that thesis is to begin with an accurate description of their state of belief. So let me just tease those two apart a little bit. In the book, I give one example of a contemporary theologian and Christian apologist who's very well known, R.C. Sproul, and he also clearly endorses this rebellion thesis. And he gives an example of being at an atheist club on a university campus. He's been invited to speak there, and they want him to talk on the existence of God. So he talks for about an hour, giving arguments as to why God exists. And then he turns to them and he says, but you really know all this. The real issue is that you're suppressing your belief in God because you don't want to believe in him and submit to him. And he starts haranguing them. Now, there are two different issues raised by that scenario. And the first is, even if that is true, is that pastorally wise, is that strategically wise to confront them in that direct way? Mm-hmm. And I would submit it isn't. But the second issue is, is that even a plausible reading of the state of disbelief of all the people in the room? And I would say you might initially think it is, but the more you spend time talking with particular atheists, the more you find that kind of presumption to be questionable. It just doesn't seem to correspond to the complexity of disbelief that you encounter in the world. What he was doing was lobbying an accusation of dishonesty, right? Oh, pretty clearly so, yeah. Yeah, he's saying to this audience, you've invited me here to try to persuade you that God exists, but you really know that God exists. And yeah, that's a pretty uh, bold charge to be making. Now, the way that philosophers usually talk about knowledge, they mean knowledge to imply that one believes the thing in question. It's rare to hear a Christian say that all atheists really know that God exists in the sense that they really do believe it. So then if they say they don't believe it, they must be lying because they really do believe it if they all know it in that sense. But the way I read your rebellion thesis, you don't mean it quite that strongly. It's more like they're in some way, at least at some times, aware of God. So you say they have a disposition to believe that God exists, and yet they are resisting that sort of pressure. So then they needn't be exactly lying in the sense that they have a belief in God and they're lying and say they don't have it or just even a brute inconsistency where they believe it, oh, and also they they don't believe it. (laughs) Or they believe that God exists, but they also believe that there is no God, which is just, you know, wildly irrational. Have you met Christians that actually will accuse atheists of lying about what they actually believe? Yeah, I, I don't think they'd put it in such strong terms as directly lying. I do think that there is a sense of bad faith that is being imputed to these atheists. An illustration maybe that that comes to mind is from William Kingdon Clifford's famous essay on the ethics of belief, where he talks about a ship owner who has this ship that is getting more and more decrepit every year, but he doesn't want to invest the money to maintain its seaworthiness. And so he sort of deceives himself into thinking yeah, this ship is good for another run across the Atlantic. And eventually that ship sinks. And as Clifford says, you know, all the people went down with the ship and it told no tales. And the ship owner is culpable for having suppressed 
that evidence which was lying in front of him. So there is a sense where he believed it was seaworthy, but he believed it was seaworthy in such a way that he was sort of deceiving himself. And so I think something like that is the kind of picture that's typically being proposed of atheists, that there is this evidence in the world and maybe written into the very human mind or the human soul that God exists, this God-shaped hole in the heart or whatever, and they're just suppressing it day by day, year by year, and managing to work themselves into this surface-level belief that God doesn't exist. They really do believe that there is no God. It's not just a surface-level belief. It's just that there is pressure from evidence to believe that there is God at the same time, pressure which they're pushing back on. That would be one way to put it, and that's, I think, the, a very plausible way to read it, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't thought a lot about this. I, th- I think sometimes our actions seem to be in contradiction with our stated beliefs. Mm-hmm. I, I remember Nicky Gumbel tells this story of the great Blondin, where he puts a, a tightrope across Niagara Falls, and then he goes across it running a wheelbarrow across, everyone's cheering. And then he says, do you think I can get a person across this chasm in the wheelbarrow? And everybody cheers. They say, yes, you can. And I think based on the evidence, they really do think he can. And yet he says, okay, somebody get in and nobody wants to get into the wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. And and so in that sense, you could say there's one sense where they thought it he could. And then maybe in another sense, I guess, you know, when there's an existential demand being placed on a person Maybe they didn't believe it as strongly as they thought they did, but there can be some kind of complexity in, in the mind, I would guess, that you could insert. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and there's uh, philosophers and psychologists talk about a lot of different kinds of self-deception, I guess. Another kind would be where uh, you believe that you don't have a certain belief, but you in fact do. So you're lying to yourself and consequently maybe lying to others, like... Say you have a friend who claims that he's not at all a racist, and every single time when you're with him, he sees a black person coming towards him, he crosses the road. And right. he does other things, like, oh, if he touches him, he washes his hands or something, you know. You could maybe make the argument to him based on his behavior that, no, you really do have certain beliefs about these other kind of people. Even though you think you don't, and you've told yourself that you don't, you really do, as shown by your behavior. It's a very interesting example. I mean, how about another one that say I'm in the copy room at my university or seminary and then somebody goes up and says, do you know what the passcode is for the copier? And I say no. And then later on, I go to make a copy and I just find myself typing it in. And I realize in one sense, I did know it. Maybe I wasn't lying in the sense that I didn't know what to share it with them. But there's a sense where I did know it, even though I wasn't aware that I had the knowledge Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can know something and not know that you know it, arguably. Of course, in that case, it's not clear you have a, like a really strong, non-rational motive. Like in my example, the guy didn't want to admit that he was a racist because he thinks it's bad to be a racist. And he'd also be embarrassed socially to admit it to you, you know. But even more than that, he's self-deceived. I mean, you, mm-hmm. could, you could say that he not only does he not want to admit it to become morally censured, but he's sort of worked himself like the ship owner into the state of thinking he's really not a racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I listen to Donald Trump, you know, and I'm trying to understand a lot of the statements he makes, does he really believe the things he's saying? You know, I, I think Donald Trump is a reflection for each one of us to some degree that we can be self-deceived in all sorts of ways. So I think there's at least a sufficient complexity in, in the human mind 
to allow all sorts of wiggle room in principle to, to have some sort of thesis, either a stronger one or a weaker one, uh, that would be the rebellion thesis. Dr. Rouser, in your book, you're arguing that Christians don't have any good grounds to believe the rebellion thesis, neither the grounds of scriptural teaching nor the grounds of experience. And so let's go into the scriptural grounds that some people allege for this. Students of the Bible know that in the Old Testament, a, quote, fool is not just a silly or stupid person, but is supposed to be a morally corrupt person. But then when people look at Psalm 14, they read this passage. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. So people just remember the first part of that passage. They say, the fool says in his heart, or fools generally say in their heart, there is no God. Doesn't this show that atheists are fools? Yes, it, it often the first verse is sort of proof texted and taken as, as an argument that atheists, uh, the Bible teaches that atheists are fools. One of the things I note in the book, I, I've often seen that on bumper stickers. It'll say April 1st is Atheist Day. The idea being, of course, that April Fool's Day is, is the day for atheists. And I say a couple things in response to that treatment of the text. And the first thing is to point out that this is a very anachronistic reading of this text. Now, it does come into this question of when atheism, such as we've defined it in this conversation, when atheism really emerges in intellectual history, there's a lot of debate about this because it really does depend on how you define atheist. Some people will find atheism back in ancient Greece. Uh, they'll try to identify the Greek atomists, people like Epicurus or Lucretius as being in some sense atheistic. While they, they clearly, I think, were could be fit within a tradition of naturalism, uh, sort of focusing on nature. But whether they're atheists in the modern sense is, I think, disputable. I would argue you don't really get atheism in the modern sense of an unequivocal rejection of the existence of a deity until this 16th or 17th, 18th centuries really emerging. So to read in this text from the ancient Hebrew culture more than 2,500 years ago as applying to what is really a modern phenomenon, I think, is an anachronistic reading of it. Even more than that, a bigger problem, as you point out by reading the first three verses, is this text offers a much more sweeping indictment. And the indictment is talking about humanity generally. Now, this passage, interestingly, gets quoted 
uh, verses 2 and 3 get quoted in Romans chapter 3, where Paul is clearly making an argument that all humanity is alienated from God. So the way that Paul takes this passage is giving a universal indictment of humanity. So it's not about intellectual atheism in the modern sense. The focus is on humanity. So then what's going on there in verse 1? I think what's one way to read that is to say it condemns people who don't live in accord with God. In other words, a sort of practical atheism, people who fail to live up to the God they confess. So ironically, I think the people who are most condemned by this passage are the very people who profess belief in God and yet fail to live in accord with that belief. So you don't see this passage as, in any sense, singling out atheists? No, not certainly not um, for those two reasons. That That's a, a reading back an early, a later concept of atheism into the text, but even more, it's, I think, a, a universal indictment of human beings failing to live in accord with the commands of God and our moral law written on our hearts. It's not even clear to me when I look at this that it's really belief that there's no God that's really at issue here because, you know, if you're just really intent on sinning, you might sort of tell yourself, well, nobody's looking or just decide to act as if there's no God. But atheism in the sense of a naturalistic worldview. Yeah, I, I, th I think that it's kind of, you know, the fool says in his heart, God does not exist or there is no God is saying, essentially, I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to be accountable to God. Uh, so the issue is not whether or not we one is professing the proposition that God exists. The issue is how one is choosing to live their lives. And that's really the focus of this. It's not in terms of belief. It's in terms of the conduct of people. Right. So the fool could be somebody who believes in God, but is just deciding to kind of put God out of their mind for the moment because they want to do bad things. Yeah, very much so. And I, I again, I think that that when you read it in that light, that's a text that speaks to each one of us because we all, of course, have those moments. Dr. Rouser, in the book, you admit that, in your view, Romans 1 maybe has a better chance of supporting the rebellion thesis. Let's listen to that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Dr. Rouser, on the face of it, this is an indictment of Gentiles who are blameworthy for rejecting God despite having adequate evidence to believe in and to thank and worship God. You argue that Christians should not want an indictment of atheism which is as strong as the rebellion thesis. 
But are you just disagreeing with what Paul says here, or do you think we can interpret this passage as implying something a little bit less than the rebellion thesis? Well, so I try to keep my focus narrow on the rebellion thesis. And the first thing I'd note here, as you point out, is the focus here is not on intellectual atheism. It's a sweeping indictment of Gentiles. So, I mean, chapters one to three of Romans are establishing the universal depravity of human beings, of Jew and Gentile, that all are alienated from God and all are in need of reconciliation and restoration. And so whatever Paul is saying in verses 18 through 25 has to be understood, and you can't just cherry pick out. I mean, we often, Christians like to cherry pick certain groups, you know, focus on homosexuals or focus on atheists or something. But we can't miss that the sweeping indictment here is being offered for all humanity, whatever else is going to go on. If you apply this text, then it's going to apply in that sense that all are in rebellion against God, which isn't the thesis of the rebellion thesis. We also come back to that issue I raised earlier, that if we read any, I mean, let me go to verse 20. I'll put it that way. So again, Paul is saying his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, so people are without excuse. And I would simply say when we interpret Scripture, um, I'm a Wesleyan in the sense that I interpret Scripture through a grid that includes tradition, includes rational reflection, and includes experience. And I think that there are moments where God's power and nature are not readily evident. Obviously, there are very many moments where they are, like in the birth of a child or in a beautiful sunset. But when you're standing on the smoking ruins of a war-torn region and looking at the corpses strewn about, I don't think in that moment that God's invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature are necessarily readily evident. And being in circumstances like that can, in those moments, lead people to wonder whether God exists. And so based upon that kind of experience, I'm led to whatever else this text is doing is to read this text in light of those examples of what I would call non-culpable doubting. It strikes me that this is an indictment of a group. And so when you make an indictment of a group, it doesn't necessarily apply to all the members in the group. So you might say Americans are... I don't know, rich and spoiled and lazy. And this could be true just as a general statement, but then if you come to any particular American, well, maybe this guy is neither rich nor spoiled nor lazy. Maybe he's hardworking and poor. So it looks to me you could read this as a condemnation of the nations generally, but then it's not clear how to apply it to any one case of an atheist that you meet. Look, maybe in general people have ignored God and ignore the evidence for God, but if somebody's an atheist, I don't know, a kid raised by Swedish parents and he's 10, I mean, is it clear that he has deliberately squashed evidence for the existence of God? Maybe he'll come into that evidence later. Maybe he has been exposed to that evidence, but he's been exposed to evidence against the existence of God because all the adults around him are telling him that there's no God. So then it's not clear that he's culpable because his best evidence that he has at that moment when he's 10, his best evidence supports atheism more than it does theism. Or you're saying people could have different kinds of excuses. They're in a horrible circumstance and... It just might seem really senseless to them, 
but then in that circumstance, it's not clear that they're culpably suppressing the truth or uh, ignoring evidence or something like that. But couldn't you uh, agree with all these exceptions and then just say that the condemnation applies as a general principle to, to the nations of the world? You could do that, but then that's just not the rebellion thesis. That's just saying that all humanity is culpable before God, that we've all failed to live in accord with. And I think this is an important point to, to bring out, that its real focus here more is on action than on assent to propositions. And when we're talking about atheism, we're talking about, again, belief in the non-existence of God, not how you're living. And, and the focus here is in terms of action. It's, it's how people are living. And they're living in a way that is inconsistent with a moral law written on their hearts. So I, I'm not denying that there's some general revelation here and that people, I think, quite universally fail to, to live in accord with that. But that's just not the focus for the rebellion thesis. So this is not a, a strong text, I think, just to support the rebellion thesis. And I think the point that you make is, is a valid one as well, that you can have a general condemnation of a group without applying it to every individual in the group. Christians, of course, theologians disagree on whether there is, for example, an age of accountability. People often like to talk about up to a certain age, human beings are innocent and they're non-culpable before God, but then after a certain age, they become culpable. I mean, on the one hand, I think that feeds into intuitions of justice and mercy. But once you begin to say, well, then at what point are they culpable? At what point could they be damned forever? And then it becomes a lot more difficult to sort of say, well, it's when you turn 13 or when you turn 18. So I think that often Christians want to have a lot of room to, to recognize that there are gradations of culpability and so on. And I think if you're going to have that generally when it comes to the way people live, then you should also have that when it comes to people who find themselves in various states of disbelief. The point I'm making is a fr a one that's entirely friendly, I think, to your rejection of the rebellion thesis. A different way to put it would be, Paul isn't here purporting to give you the psychology for any atheist that you meet. So, if you're talking to somebody and all you know is that they check off the atheist box in the religion survey, you can't infer that this person has been given up by God to the lust of their heart given them up to degrading passions, that they've deliberately ignored God. Maybe they have, but maybe something else is going on. It depends on how much information a person has, I suppose. There's nothing here that says that everybody has all the same information at all points in their life. And there's nothing here that says everybody has the same amount of counter-evidence that there is no God at all points either. And I take it there is evidence like this. I mean, look, if you're if you're a kid and your parents tell you there's no God, that's evidence. Yeah. At that moment for you, I mean, it's not evidence that you should stick with. As you grow up, you should, you should question it. You should go looking for more evidence to see if there's something that overturns it. But I take it that's evidence because you believe a lot of things on those, those kind of bases, just a basis of testimony. You know, it's interesting that two different people can look at the same data and draw different conclusions. And so, for example, you could have two people who survive a genocide and one person is led to existential despair and to doubt the existence of God. The other person can, as a result of that experience, be drawn deeper into God and have their faith strengthened. And to me, it's, it's a very mysterious thing as to, to why some of those 
reactions are just so different. And I, I'll just put it like this. I don't think that you can count up the difference simply to sinful rebellion in the one. I think it's also interesting when you begin to look at some of the complexities in the brain. So, for example, there's a growing body of evidence that autistics, people who are, are sort of high on a spectrum of autism, that they have a much more difficult challenge in trying to think about there being a God. Or in other words, atheism is going to be much higher among people who are higher on a spectrum of autism. So does that suggest, it seems to suggest that there's something in the wiring of the brain that makes it more difficult for these people to think of or relate to a disembodied mind. And if that's true, then how do you bring in the degree to which their wiring is different from the rest of us to the question of their culpability and failing to believe in God? I think it's a very complicated question. That could affect your judgment about culpability for sure. As I read through this book, Dr. Rouser, I was struck that part of the motivation for the book was just being offended at how Christians sort of can be insulting and dismissive towards atheists and actually sometimes not listen to what they tell you about their own views or their own motivations. So atheists are all fools, they're all dishonest, or they hate God and so on. But surely self-deception is a huge problem that humans face, and it's, it's one of the ways that evil manifests in all of us. Isn't it possible to, say, cite a passage like this in dialogue with an atheist not to throw the accusation that, see, you know better, or at least you ought to know better, and there you are still being an atheist? Isn't it worth, though, bringing up this passage as a signal that we should be aware that we might be repressing evidence kind of subconsciously or involuntarily. Well, so again, there I think there's those two different issues. The issue of, first of all, whether the point is a legitimate one, and second, whether it would be rhetorically effective or pastorally effective. And so on the first point, I, I think clearly so. I think it's always possible that a person could be self-deceived you know, this is a pretty common phenomenon in the human experience, though. The one thing I would want to caution us against is thinking that doing that supports the rebellion thesis, because it simply wouldn't support the rebellion thesis. It would just be a reminder to a person that you could be deceiving yourself. You could be irrational, which is fair enough. But I think it's also a reminder for us that in the way that we hold as a theist, uh, the way I hold on to my theistic belief, could also be manifesting a confirmation bias, an optimism bias. I could have motivated reasoning to try to maintain my beliefs, my social standing in my community, my job, my happy marriage, and try to vindicate my theism for those reasons. And that too could lead me to be unreasonable in the way that I assess the evidence for the existence of God. So, I mean, I, I agree that, that it's a valid point to make. I certainly think it cuts both ways. But in terms of the other issue, the pastoral dimension to it, I, I guess a person would just have to be discerning as to 
when it is appropriate to sort of raise this as a caution. And I just had an exchange on a radio show with an atheist in Britain named Alom Shaha. And Alom Shaha wrote, he's an atheist who came out of the Muslim community, and he wrote a memoir of leaving Islam behind. And it's a very candid book. And he talks in there about the loss of his mother uh, when he was 13 years old. She died, and he had this incredible sense of loss and this incredible desire to experience the love for her that he had lost to experience that again. And he's noted that often Christians and other theists have said to him, maybe you're just denying God exists. Maybe you've become an atheist because you're angry at the loss of your mother. And uh, to his credit, he said he's thought hard about that and he takes that seriously, but he just doesn't think that that's the case. And um, I sort of have to take him at his word. I mean, he could still be wrong, but I could still be wrong as well. So uh, I think that those are legitimate cautions for everybody in the conversation. Dr. Rouser, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. This week's Thinking Music has been the track, Ecstasy is Not the Enemy, from the album The Wilderness I Want by Jim Rooster. You can listen to or download the whole track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. What did you think about today's episode? Let us know by commenting on the blog post or by uploading us some audio feedback. If you enjoyed this episode, would you share the link on social media like Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest? And if you're a regular listener, you can support this podcast through PayPal or by buying anything on Amazon after clicking one of our links. Finally, if you use iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review us there. Next week, we'll hear the second part of my conversation with Dr. Randall Rouser about his book, Is the Atheist My Neighbor? Rethinking Christian Attitudes Toward Atheism. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.